0: We're continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a famous set of chapters, Matthew 5-7 through 7, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus has convened on a mountainside and is instructing disciples. He's sat down and He's opening His mouth and letting them in on the secrets of heaven as it comes down to earth. He's telling people, about a new administration that has taken over the governance of the world. It's happening at the same time as all the other administrations, all the other presidents and all the other dictators and prime ministers. It's happening at the very same time, but it's the only one that's going to last. When China is no longer a superpower and America is no longer a superpower, God will still be a superpower. And he is preparing us to live forever on this new world that he is creating. And so Jesus says, here's what it looks like when you come under the sway of this president of the world. This king of the heavens and of the earth. When you start to let him impact the way you think and what you do when you build your life on His words and you have a kind of life that becomes indestructible, that can't be knocked over by strong winds and it can't be damaged by floods. This is what your life will look like. And so Jesus is teaching them about when the life of the heavens takes residence in people of the earth. And the last thing He has said... As part of the passage that Pastor Hutch preached last week was this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's, of course, a reassuring thing for him to say, because it's easy. It's easy to be perfect, just like God. For those of you who don't realize, I'm being sarcastic. It is not easy, it is impossible, and it is difficult, which is the same thing. But as he moves away from saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to resemble your Father in the heavens. I want your life character to have the same kind of quality as God Himself. The God who lets it rain on scoundrels and scalawags and saints alike. The God who is quite generous to rotten people and righteous people. I want you to be generous like that. I want you to represent his character. And then he moves into some practice of righteousness. Be careful, he says, not to do your acts of righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. He moves into a section where he's going to talk about three practices of righteousness, three habits of holiness Three kinds of things that everybody in ancient Judaism would have known, expected, practiced, and embodied. They would know if you're going to be a righteous person connected to God, you would do these things. You would, you would give. You would pray. You would fast. But he, he has an aim besides stating the obvious to them. He wants them to think about how they do these things. And as we start to think about how we do these things, and that we should do these things, I think a question put to me the other night by my eight-year-old son, a question that has been put to me by other children in this congregation at other times, gives us a nice entrance point into some of what Jesus is up to with this teaching about money and giving. And here is the question. How, Dad, how does God get the money? That's the question. He's talking about the offering, right? How does God get the money? Any of you kids ever wondered that? How God gets the money? I've heard you ask this before. It's a great question. It's the kind of question that a child would ask because they would actually believe things. They would actually think, Oh, yeah, when we we're giving money to God, we we're giving money to God. And we could become sophisticated, of course, and we could answer that child by saying, Well, you see, God doesn't really get the money. It's this way of talking. We're being euphemistic. We're being symbolic and metaphorical. He doesn't really get the money. This, it's, it's really just a way you pay the church budget. You could say something like that if you wanted to destroy a child's faith. And ruin and shrivel your own soul <laughs> but you see what's perfect about the question if you'll let it lodge there and linger for a moment in your head is that asking that kind of question and thinking about how you would answer it if a child asked you gives us an insight into a major teaching of the whole bible which is always training us to see him who is invisible The Bible always wants us, in the midst of all that we can see, in the midst of all that is happening, to be able to be steadied and durably reliant on Him who is invisible. This is a phrase I've lifted from Hebrews 11, where it's talking about Moses who chose to regard the pleasures, the deceitful pleasures of sin for a short time, to bear disgrace with the people of God. He did not tremble before the anger of Pharaoh, but he endured before that anger because he saw him who was invisible. He saw him who was invisible. Moses was able to endure a threatening situation because he was able to let his life be shaped and framed by someone he couldn't see, but who was very real. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the life of righteousness. Any of our thoughts, any of our practices, any of our words, all of it is ultimately meant to be lived in response to him who is invisible. Over and over again in the New Testament you find these kinds of statements that demonstrate that this is the kind of thing God is up to. God wants you to believe that He is so bound to His people that when you do something to His people, you're doing it to Him. You know the Apostle Paul? When he was out for a horseback ride and God clotheslined him and knocked him off? It wasn't exactly like that. It was a bright shining light, right? He blinded him and knocked him off his horse and Jesus said... When Paul says, who in the fright are you? He says, I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? You know, and of course, Paul could have said, I ain't never touched you, man. I don't even know who you are. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Because Paul was being murderous to his people. And so Jesus gets a little mobster-esque. You mess with them, you mess with me. It's a very real thing. It's wonderful that he identifies with us so closely. You parents understand what this is like. You've ever wanted to kill someone who hurt your child? You've ever had your gut shake with sorrow because of their sorrow? In the book of Hebrews, when the author is trying to urge people not to be lazy, not to become self interested, not to become self absorbed, he says, Bear in mind, God will not forget your work and the love that you have shown Him as you have helped His people. See, the author of Hebrews knew that it's important to see Him who is invisible. When you help His people, you're helping Him. When you do the things that God cares about, you're helping God. This, of course, accounts for the element of surprise when Jesus tells that story in Matthew 25 that many of you may know. When he compares us unflatteringly to livestock, and he says, At the end of the age, the great king will come, and there will be a division. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. And to the sheep, I will say, Woohoo! Come on in, fellas. Come receive the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And they're all shocked. Why, why are we getting in? Why do we get to live on this new world? And he says, because. Because you helped me. You were always mindful of me. You were always seeing him who was invisible. He doesn't say it exactly like that. He says it in specifics. Because I was awfully thirsty that time. And you gave me something to drink. I was languishing in prison. You came and visited me. I was a poor dude with crust in my hair and frightening to look at. And you... Gave me a sandwich. I was an orphan and he took me in. And they say, no, we didn't. We've never seen you. We never did that. And Jesus said, you sure did. Because whatever you did to my people, whatever you did, even to the most lost and forgotten and and disregarded, you did to me. And the wicked, he says to them, he says, hey, you guys... uh, Weeping and gnashing of teeth for you, black, utter darkness, because you, you didn't help me. And they said, well, what? If we had seen you, we would have helped you? Who wouldn't if Jesus walked up to you and said, hey, can you spare a nickel? Well, what, a nickel's not going to get you. Hey, can you spare five bucks? Who wouldn't help Jesus? And he said, I showed up to you all the time and you never lifted a finger. You ran the other way. You ignored me. You never thought of me. That whole parable is about realizing that there's an invisible one in disguise in all the kinds of ways that we run into. If you start to believe that, then you have access into what Jesus is teaching here when He says, be careful not to do these acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not, wait a second, we got to stop there. Verse two, Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, now I just mentioned to you that in ancient Judaism, it would have been a foregone conclusion, which is to say, everybody would have needed no explanation to know that part of being God's people is that you were a generous person. You looked after not only yourself, but you looked after other people as well. You gave. In our day, we don't know that. So I'm going to pause for just a second and have our first point be this. When you give, the fact that Jesus says when you give implies that you should give. This is like masterful exegesis here. This is demonstrating my profound intelligence as an exegete. When you give to the needy, Jesus isn't saying, hey, now that you're liberated by grace, you don't have to give nothing to nobody. Use everything for yourself. Travel honking Cadillac. Get a beach house. Who cares about anybody else? He doesn't tell anybody that. He says, when you give, when you give to the needy. There's an interesting thing that happens That Jesus is just assuming to be the case. You remember earlier he says, I don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm not abolishing it. I'm fulfilling it. I'm embodying it. I'm showing you what it was actually meant for. And see, from the beginning of time, God has always had a concern for the poor. He's less concerned than we are about the differences. He knows this about us. He knows that we are the kind of people who will assume the moment we have something more than someone else, that we are therefore better than someone else. It doesn't cross our minds that we happen to be born in the right decade, in the right century, that we chose the right parents, the right genetic makeup, that we, were, that we gave ourselves the right opportunities. God's not impressed by wealth in any manner at all because He knows that He gave it to people. The rich and the poor have this alike. The Lord is maker of them both. So one of the true tests of being a person who is connected to God is that you care about all the things that God made, including poor people, forgotten people, unwashed people, the people that you're afraid of and want to run away from. The Apostle Paul, after his conversion, goes to meet the Apostles at Jerusalem, and they extend to him the right hand of fellowship. And here's the thing the one thing they say to him they say, All they asked was that I continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to keep on doing. The apostle assumes it's a granted, given kind of thing that when you start getting connected to Jesus, you'll be eager to use some of what you've got for the benefit of others. God knows another thing too. He knows that when you start realizing that what's been given to you by way of income, what's been given to you by way of opportunity, and the family you've got, the capital that you've got, what's been given to you is not just for you, it's for other people. And he knows that if you start to believe that, something fantastic will happen to you. And if you do not believe it, something dreadful will happen to you. It's illustrated in a great story. I told this many years ago. I don't think it's been, a, it's been a while, so probably all of you are new at this point. You know the story where the red fern grows? I don't even know if this is actually in the story anymore, but I thought it was from when I was a kid. I always remember when this boy's out hunting with Big Dan and Little Ann, that one of the ways that, as he was coon hunting, one of the allurements and the traps that would work for these raccoons is that you would get this this log and there would be a hole in it just big enough for a raccoon hand to go down into and you place a shiny coin at the bottom of it well raccoons apparently like shiny coins and that way they're similar to us that raccoon would slide his hand down and grab that shiny coin making a fist, as you have to do to get a shiny coin off the bottom of a log or trap. And then suddenly, when trying to leave, his hand would be stuck, trapped by his own desire. Uh, uh. Now, if you were the kind of person who was sort of a raccoon whisperer, you might say, hey, fella, you know, if you just let go of the coin, you can run free but he doesn't want to let go of the coin. That's the genius of it. He'll sit there and be trapped by his own desire hanging on to this coin. And thereby depicting what Jonah said when he was in the belly of a well: Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That if you hang on to your money, you hang on to your life, if you hang on to your people, if you hang on to protect everything around you, and you clench and you clench and you clench, eventually your joints are going to rust up and your soul is going to shrivel. And so God says, give, make giving apart. And that's what the spirit does. The spirit's WD-40. that makes those joints start to open up again. Because we live by grace. We live by God's gifts. And as you hand over some of what's been given to you, your hands become open so that you can continue to receive from the God who is described as the God of all grace or the God of all gifts. We're in an economy of gifts, not of earning. God gives things to us and He knows that if we give, we'll learn to trust Him who is invisible and we won't forfeit the grace that could be ours by clinging on to everything. It's a risk. You've got to risk giving up that coin to see if more coins will come your way. You've got to risk letting go to see if anything else is going to come. God says it will, but you've got to trust. When you give implies that you should give. But Secondly, this. How you give determines for whom you are giving. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the Hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they already received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but give in secret so that your father who is in secret will reward you. The whole idea here is that the manner of your giving, once you've determined that I'm going to give, the manner of your giving determines a lot about who it is you're actually giving for. And Jesus is suggesting here that it's very possible for people like us, even religious people, to start giving in such a way that God doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. Because He knows secrets of our hearts. Do you know that He knows this about you? We are inveterate public relations agents. Even if you don't work in the public relations industry, and I don't think most of you in here do, from the time you were young, you were skilled, self-taught, and then your parents probably helped you too, at self-promotion. You know instinctively when you're telling a story how to leave out the parts about you that would make you look less flattering, and how to include the parts that would make you look, well, more flattering. You know how to include the parts about the other person that would make them look stupid and to make sure you include the parts about yourself that would make you look smart. We all do this. He, do you not think you do this? Liar. We all do this. And Jesus knows we do this. He knows we're the kind of people who like to play for an audience that we like to live for approval. And so he says, you know what's going to happen if you are someone who's giving and you, you make a lot of fanfare about it. He says, announcing it with trumpets. And just last week, before I started reading commentaries, I was telling my sons, Jesus is being hyperbolic here. Cause I like to teach them big words. <laughs> Nobody actually announced with trumpets when they were giving a gift and, He's talking about something that's meant to sound ridiculous. Like, I am about to make my gift. It's ridiculous, right? He's exposing the ridiculousness of, it. well, some commentators say he's being hyperbolic. And some say, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's talking about when the trumpet was sounded for the hour of prayer. And you'd, you'd close up your shop and you'd run down to the temple and everybody know where you're going. I'm going to put my money in the temple treasury At the prayer hour, so everybody could see. In whichever case, the whole idea here is if you start to practice your goodness for watching eyes, it ceases to be a gift and it becomes, as my professor Sinclair Ferguson said, you've entered out of the realm of gift and you've made a purchase. You're not making a gift anymore. You're purchasing something. You're purchasing a reputation for yourself. You're purchasing a claim from others. You're not helping the poor. You're using the poor as a platform to show your greatness. Oh, well, so that's not very flattering. The key issue here is be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Jesus isn't talking, of course, about the fact that when you act righteously, when you perform goodness, when you do deeds of service to other people, that everything must be done in secret, because how could that be? Just a chapter earlier, he says, you're a city on a hill. You're the light of the world. So let your good deeds shine before men so that they will praise your Father in heaven. One chapter earlier, he said, If you're living as you're supposed to, there's all kind of goodness that's going to come out from you and people are going to see it. And now he's saying, don't let anybody see it. You can't help but see it. The whole issue is, are you doing it in order to be seen by them? To be honored by men? Well, let's ask yourself a question. We can't ask yourself a question. You can ask yourself a question or I can ask you a question. Here it goes. Because some of you think, well, I I don't know that I do this. There are subtle ways that we do this. There are subtle ways. For instance, are there people in your life that you serve that you might make miserable in your service to them? By this I mean sometimes we do stuff for people. We practice goodness. Maybe you have had it in your head that you're going to help some disabled person, some widow, some income-less person. You're going to help some poor person. And I hope you will. I hope you will. everybody in here will have a relationship with people who have far less than you do. Let's say you have a noble-minded idea about how much goodness you're going to bring into their life. And you do this goodness. You know, you come on a Thursday at 2 o'clock into some poor person's life. And you do something good for them for 30 minutes. And they have the audacity not to write you a thank you note or even to act excited for what you've done for that 30 minutes in the whole life of theirs It's a train wreck. I'm being facetious again. Have you ever had this happen to you where you do something good for somebody and they don't respond with gratitude or they don't respond with a sufficient amount of gladness? Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your kids, it's probably definitely your kids. And you realize in that moment, oh... This service was way more about you than it was about them. You're not trying to serve them. You're trying to enhance you. There's a lot of people walking around with smiling faces and poisoned, seething hearts full of resentment because you're serving somebody and they're not responding the right way. That's why it's hard to actually be a servant. You've heard me say before, everybody wants to be called a servant in the Christian community, but nobody wants to be treated like one. That's part of what secret service is about, is making sure you wean your heart off the applause and praise of others. You do things realizing, oh yes, the invisible God can see me. He'll take care of me, He will reward me, He notices my service. The other thing that'll happen sometimes if you're living merely for the approval of others, merely for their applause when you do good things. Once you do good things. See this 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 isn't just about acts of righteousness, it's all the kinds of things you do and can perform. Once you do them, you won't be filled with gratitude that you were enabled to do them, you'll be filled with a soul-crushing pressure of oh no, how can I do it again? You meet a sales quota. You prayed and prayed and you you met you met some goal, some fantastic goal. And at the end of the month you're not saying, "Woohoo!" You're saying, "Oh my gosh, how am I going to do that again next month?" You've heard the expression of preacher is only good as his last sermon. It's the same for football coaches and most of us in all kinds of areas of life. If you are ruled moved Enlivened by merely the applause and accolades of others, it will cre- create an enormous kind of pressure. Because you know what happens when you get praise from them, which Jesus says, "You got your reward. That's what you were looking for. You were looking for a little applause. You got it. That's it. God doesn't need to give you any reward now. You weren't thinking of him anyway. you were just wanting applause from men. That applause is like hot oil, or it's like oil being dropped on a hot manifold. It hits and it doesn't satisfy you, it doesn't change you, it doesn't help you. It's just, you're like an addict, you've got to get more. You build up a tolerance to it, you've got to get more. And Jesus is trying to save you from all that. From a kind of grandstanding that roots God out of righteousness. And says, here's the safeguard for you, secrecy is the safeguard. You give in secret because God is in secret. It's a practice, it's a habit of weaning you off of the approval and the applause of men so that you can train your inner life to entrust itself to the God who is in secret. Who's resourcing you. Who's, who actually is accepting you. Who's actually on your side. How you give determines for whom you're giving. When you give implies that you should give. And the last point is this. Developing this private habit of giving is a way to see the audience of one. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I mentioned at the beginning the question, how does God get the money? It's a question aimed at helping us to see that the main thing about our lives as people of faith is learning to see him who is invisible. It's the thing that can keep us serving other people even if they don't give us back what we think we need. Because it's not them we're ultimately serving anyway. That buffoon husband of yours, that critical wife of yours, those rambunctious crumb snatchers of yours that create nothing but messes. That lady down the street that you help and is nothing but cantankerous towards you. You're not serving them first and mainly. And you're not serving yourself first and mainly. You're serving Him who is invisible to whom you belong. Skip Ryan, who's pastor at Park City's pres in Texas, he was, before a fall that led him out of the ministry, said this after a period of renewal and self reflection. He says, You know what you think of me, it's none of my business. What I think you think of me can kill me. I think he was reading my diary. What you think about me is none of my business. What I think you think about me can utterly destroy me. What matters is what Jesus thinks of me. Now, that's a bunch of pious, or is it? Is that a real thing? I think the New Testament wants you to think it's a real thing. That's why Jesus doesn't say, just give and do it altruistically and don't worry about any kind of reward. He says, no, 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 no. Give so that you'll get a reward from the one whose applause you really want. He knows we were made for an audience. He just wants us to live for the right one. For the audience that can heal us. For the audience that can see through us and still cover us. For the audience that can make us new. For the audience that can move us in the right kind of way. He knows we were made for an audience and he gives us one. The benevolent Father in heaven. Who sees all and will not turn his face away. What matters is what Jesus thinks of me. Do you know that the Apostle Paul says this thing that seems like it must be a misprint. In 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about being entrusted with the secret things of God. And he says, in a way that I don't even understand, I'm trying to understand. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. You need to camp out there sometime. I don't even judge myself, he says. My conscience is clean, but that doesn't make me innocent. Some of you don't even have a clean conscience. But he said, my conscience is clean, but that doesn't have any bearing on whether I'm actually in a good position or a bad position. It is the Lord who judges me, he says. So he says, wait. Wait till the appointed time the secrets of hearts will be exposed and at that time, each will receive his praise from God. And you think, oh no, 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 they got the translation wrong. At that time, each one will give praise to God, right? And he says, no, 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 no. At that time, The Lord who judges me. This is not something that frightened him. That's another clue that he might be living in another planet than you. It is the Lord who judges me and I can't wait till that day because at that point I will receive my praise from God. Praise from God. And you start to realize this is the teaching of the New Testament. That's what he was saying when he said, Come share my master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. All little children... Love it when their parents are proud of what they did. Your players, if you're a coach, they love it if you're impressed with them. Lovers, husbands, and wives, when they serve one another and they want to please and they have pleased, it's gratifying. God made us for his pleasure. And here's the magic here's the magic of it all that Jesus by His life, and by His death, has rendered us pleasurable to God. So that as we entrust ourselves to Him more and more, as we run to Him more and more, as we look to Him and learn to see Him at all times and in all places more and more, we get to anticipate that one day God is going to inspect us and we're going to pass the inspection. Because of what Jesus has done. And he's going to look at the paltry little services we did and the paltry little offerings we did and say, way to go, fella. Come on in here to this new world with us. Be glad that you're an ingredient, as C.S. Lewis said, in the divine happiness. You helped make God smile. Some of you don't even think God ever smiles. He does. A big old toothy grin. Over his people that he has purchased, as they embody him in the world. Now I can see some of you saying this. Well, if I didn't give, if I waited till I have a pure motivation, I would never give anything. I would never do anything. All I ever do is think about whether people are going to see me or not. And here's what's wonderful. Of course, that's true. But the religious person that he's denouncing here sets a plan to do something so people will notice it and then carries it out and then posts it on Facebook and tweets about it. The person in whom Jesus lives realizes, oh no, I'm about to do a thing like me every single Sunday. I don't come up here thinking, I just hope people will see Jesus. I hope they'll see Jesus, but I also hope they don't think I'm an idiot. I want you to like me. And so you know what I have to do? I have to run to Jesus. And I have to say, I'm a mess. And I want to be self-forgetful. I want to, I want to cruise on that cruise line of God that says you can take a perpetual vacation from yourself. I'm going to destroy all the equipment up here today. <laughs> but see, that's what God gives to you, the permission to take a vacation from yourself. Of course you've got bad motivations. But the Spirit of Christ lives in those who are His. And that means it produces good motivations. And they are right there together in your broth the false and true. If you pay only attention to the bad, you won't ever do a thing. If you say, Jesus, make me self-forgetful. Let me operate for you. Let me operate for them. You'll do it. You can forget about yourself. Sometimes it only happens in seconds at a time. Sometimes you can do it for up to 11 minutes. But you can tell that you're making some progress in the Christian life the more you don't think about yourself. I don't even judge myself, Paul says. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What else could that be talking about? How could that happen unless you're just forgetting about what your hands are doing? And C.S. Lewis, you hear me if you've been here, quote him, Ad nauseum. I'm sorry, but not really. He's the best. He embodied this principle because in one set of letters, letters to an American lady, he had this correspondence with a widow lady in Virginia for 15 years. He never met her. She was on a very fixed income. He arranged for a stipend to be given to her from his publishers. He wrote back and forth to her for 15 years as he did with a lot of people. And in one of his letters, he says this, I am a panicky person about money. Poverty scares me more than nearly everything except for high cliffs and spiders. You can relate to that. The only thing I'm more afraid of than poverty is high cliffs and spiders. But C.S. Lewis was somebody who believed in the spirit of God who believed in the work of Christ, who learned to see him who was invisible. And so he did not listen to his fear. He listened to his master. He presented himself to God to be empowered to do that which he could not do by himself. At the end of his life, it was discovered. He did not write about this anywhere. At the end of his life, it was discovered that he gave away two-thirds of his income. Now, on what planet would a person who's panicky about money and fears poverty more than tall cliffs and spiders be able to give away, if you're not good with fractions, 66.667% of his income? Well, it's the planet where the heavens get a hold of a mere mortal and take up residence in him so he can live a life that's beautiful and Beneficial that broadcasts the very plenteous rainbow bouquet of God's favor to all the world. Let's follow him, and following him who is invisible, as generous people, as trusting people, who live our lives for the applause of the one who's going to give it to us. And I don't know why. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.